0: Check out our work at OneCircleDigital.com and OneCircleBrand.com. If you work for a network, studio, brand, startup, or corporation and are looking for a partner to create media that will build, engage, and entertain, reach out to me at John at OneCircleMedia.com. I'd love to hear from you. Thanks, everyone. And I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Working Experience.
1: The Working Experience. Route 93 North is almost at a standstill. It's a rough one out there this morning. Snow and sleet. There is no service on the Stand clear of the closing doors, please. Ah yeah folks, we're gonna be a few minutes. We have train traffic ahead of us. We should be moving shortly. John, you need that record ASAP. Where
0: are we on that presentation?
1: Man, HR wants to see it. Did
0: you return that email yet? We have a team meeting at ten. Stay, to stay late, Bob. Teamwork
1: makes the dream work. They're <laughs> moving in a different direction. And after the meeting, we'll have a breakout
2: session. Who ate
1: my, Where are my hot Where This microwave is disgusting.
2: Oh, oh what's that? It
1: wow. wow. <laughs> I can't take it anymore. I can't take it.
2: Anymore.
1: Hey, everybody, and welcome to this episode of the Working Experience Podcast. My guest today is Professor David George Haskell. Professor Haskell is a biologist whose work integrates scientific, literary, and contemplative studies of the natural world. He is Professor of Environmental Studies at Sewanee, the University of the South, and a Guggenheim Fellow, as well as the author of The Song of the Trees and Sounds Wild and Broken. Welcome, Professor Haskell.
2: Thank you, it's such, such a pleasure to be with you.
1: Um, yeah, I heard about your book on uh, NPR. You were doing an interview there and mm-hmm. um, the subject matter really fascinated me because I didn't really, I mean, I am an English teacher, so that, that part grabbed me, but then the whole integration of sound was really interesting as well.
2: Wonderful, thank you. I'm glad it, it's resonating as well <laughs> Yeah, <it were.
1: laughs> yeah. Uh, so could you tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, your education?
2: Sure. So, so now, you know, my work now, I'm uh, a writer, um, but also a professor at the liberal arts college where I teach uh, just undergraduates. Uh, so just undergrad education. And I, I was born in London, but grew up in France uh, near Paris, and then came over to went to the UK for college. And then I went to grad school in upstate New York. Uh, so moved a little bit. And since the, um, 1990s. i have been here in the in the US uh, and trying to tune my ear to the North American continent. and And this book sounds wild and broken is is in a way informed by all those places, especially my childhood in in France. And then what I'm hearing, what what it's like to come to a new new place and and listen to the some familiar sounds, but many strange sounds. You know the the, the sounds of nature and of culture. richly variegated around the world and I take great delight in that but also want to excavate below the surface a little bit and understand why that is
1: and then it's linked to the environment to our relationship with the environment and to creativity and things like that
2: sure yeah in the the in the present moment uh, the sounds of the world are are still uh, marvelously diverse but they're threatened in many ways threatened by too much noise in some place, you know, in, in in the middle of a city, there are some birds that can't hear one another sing. And so of course, then their social network falls apart because they can't connect during the breeding season and their social groups can't hold together. Other birds are able to adapt in the oceans. We pump so much noise into the ocean through shipping and seismic exploration that fish and shrimp and whales and dolphins have having a very hard time in, in some parts of the world. So, so there's that, uh, series of, of problems now and also the problem of silencing when a rainforest is is clear cut or a prairie is turned into corn the sonic diversity of that of those environments declines and that matters both because it's a loss of beauty and diversity in the present moment but also that sonic diversity is uh if we look back into deep time it's part of what is a generative power of evolution. So sound connects creatures to one another. And through connection comes new possibilities. So it's ada- could, that possibility could be adaptation to a local environment. It could be the formation of a new species. So sound is, is although it's ephemeral, is a creative force in, in the world. And, and so part of the book is about examining crises, but part of it is an examination and a celebration with the diversity of sound and where it came from, from, from deep time, what did the earth sound like hundreds of millions of years ago? And how did the sounds of the earth get to be so diverse now? Well,
1: you're, you're right. I noticed your writing style very much seemed to mirror this interconnection. Like you, you talk about the connectedness of like the ink on the page to sunlight, to algae, to oil, to that, running electric cars, the hum of that. You, you talk about coming from uh, a, a concert that you went to and, and the melding of the, the instruments and the musicians, the instruments. There was that real, like the, the style of the writing mimicked, which I thought was very interesting, mimicked the subject matter that you're discussing
2: yeah so sound connects and of course sound reveals of course because sound goes through walls and around corners and so we can hear things that we can't necessarily see so yeah my writing style sort of reflects my curiosity which is when I hear a sound like just something as every day as an airplane going overhead well where did that sound come from of course there's a whole engineering story to be told there. And why is the airport located in this part of town, rather some other part of town? That's a story about politics and environmental justice. And then there's a biological and geologic story. The sound energy that we're hearing in the airplane is the roar of sunlight that has been buried under the ocean or under the, the ground in the form of fossil fuels for hundreds of millions of years. And that sunlight is bursting back out briefly into sound and so any any sonic experience has a series of stories behind it the same way that you know you go hear some music well of course there's a story of the composers and the musicians but also what what are these instruments made from when we hear a violin or a guitar we're hearing the second life of a forest we're hearing wood the, the physicality the materiality of wood in relationship with human creativity And so I see my uh, part of the fun of writing is in tracing those connections back and interweaving them in ways that make sense, right? You can draw connections and just throw them out there haphazardly, but I hope that there's uh, some coherence in the narrative as well in in finding these connections and then putting them together, looking for some some interesting convergences.
1: Well, it was interesting too, the juxtaposition how you went. as I was saying before we started the podcast, you you start in Prospect Park. I used to live maybe a seven minute walk. And that area of Brooklyn is extremely noisy. Like I used to live on Flatbush Avenue. But it was amazing when you walked into the center of the park, there was such a barrier to all of that. And it just felt, you know, my stress levels would go down. That's what I found so, I don't live in New York City anymore so stressful about the city really was the noise, like the constant noise. Mm-hmm. And I thought if the subway could just be somewhat less noisy, just that, if they could get the screech out of it, all of our stress levels would go down. Yeah. <laughs> but um, you talked about the katydids and, and the birds, and then you juxtapose that and the crickets, and then you juxtapose that to the – I love these phrases that you used um, – I think it was the car tires complaining, and I really liked the angry intersections at Grand Army Plaza. (laughs) That is a very apt description of driving around Grand Army Plaza. But I love that juxtaposition between those those very soothing, calming noises and then the, the noises we make
2: yeah and you know that's one thing that that actually at grand army plaza in brooklyn you're you're in that place of really interesting intersections that you know the 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 traffic that i mean anyone who's tried to cross as a pedestrian or drive around it in a car or or go on a bike i mean i've ridden my bike through through that you know that's terrifying because people are by necessity if you want to Get from A to B. You have to cross four other lanes of, of traffic really rapidly, and so everyone is—I mean, guaranteed. You spend a couple of minutes there. You're hearing people honking their horns mm. at each other, partly out of anger, but also just out of a survival instinct of, <laughs> you know, I don't want to be crushed by some truck speeding down the, the opposite lane. So you've you've got all of that happening at Grand Army. You've also got the subway lines that you can hear the, the rumble of the subway actually coming up through the earth there. If you're standing there in, in the middle of the plaza, and then you're right next door to Prospect park, which is of course, a, a large park and, and a park where that is on the, the flight path for LaGuardia airport. So if you know, the, it's one of, if you look at the flight maps for LaGuardia, they, the, the side of Prospect Park is one of the things that pilots can use visually to line up for landing at LaGuardia. So sometimes every 90 seconds, you've got a plane coming overhead. All of that combined with the sounds of the, of the living earth community, crickets, birds, some frogs in, in, in the, the water and, and the wetlands, richly variegated because the park has some woodland, it has some some open areas of grass and and you have the sounds of people being happy there as well so lots of 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 more pleasant human sounds kids playing and friends meeting one another and all of those that's one of the great things about shared communal spaces around trees and grass people kind of you know stress level goes down um partly because we're around other other, um, species but partly we're in a different sort of social space you know, Flatbush Ave, yeah, I mean, you can people meet up there and there's a good human interaction, but, but the, you're not quite so open to, to strangers and to, to just hanging out. Uh, there's always this level of adrenaline and alertness there. And that's one of the challenges for the human body now. We, are, we evolved, of course, over hundreds of thousands of years in environments that were not so full of engine noise. And so one of the questions in the city is how do we thrive amid these new sounds? And how do we, for city managers now, how do we deal with the injustices that were imposed? You know, some, some parts of the city have got way more noise than others. And that was even deliberately planned. Some roads and highways were put through, especially minority and low-income neighborhoods, as a deliberate policy to, to break up these so-called ghettos uh, to allow white suburbanites to get in and out of the city quicker. I mean, anyone who's been on the BQE knows that that plan is not working out so well now. Right. <laughs> G- getting in and out of the suburbs, <laughs> like, you know, you're better off on the train. but. Uh, those those highways and bus depots and other places that make a lot of noise are disproportionately located in, in some neighborhoods rather than others. And that's part of what's happening in the sounds in the city. The other part is, I mean, it's not all negative stuff about human sound, there's the marvel of the vibe of every neighborhood. So the kind of music people might play on the street corner, the sounds of kids coming in and out of the school, the chatter of people on the street. and when you've grown up in the city, you, you kind of imprint on those sounds of home. And when those sounds change, say through gentrification or through someone putting a new road th- through your neighborhood, you, you feel dislocated because the sound is, is no longer the sound of home. And this is true in rural areas too, right? People uh, love the sounds of, of, of what they grew up with. And so sound in the city is has this paradoxical nature. Yeah, it can be harmful and physiologically stressful, but it, it is also the sound of home. And of course, the challenge for, for us now is to figure out how can we create more of the sounds of home and less of the stress.
1: Hmm. I used to, when I lived in Brooklyn, I used to teach in the South Bronx, and I, I would notice how loud it was up there. And it, and it affected the kids. I mean, they mm-hmm. they were... You know i don't want to say like all of them were just loud by nature but you had to be kind of you'd always hear people yelling and i always mm-hmm. thought like you had to raise your volume just to get noticed because everything else was so loud around you yep
2: and the, the you know the and the you mentioned the subway that will that will do it for you as well just yeah. being in that place to communicate with a friend you got, you got you got to be loud and so Absolutely. The sounds of the city work their way into human voices. The same is actually true for non-human creatures like birds. The birds that are around in the city are singing louder. They're having to put more effort into their vocalizations mm. than those in the countryside. They're also singing at a higher pitch. And the human voice does this too. If you're around a, a low rumbly street sound, you're going to speak at a higher pitch so that so you're getting away from that masking noise mm. there. Yeah. And, the, and the thing with schools and sound is there's really good evidence that it disrupts learning. And so classrooms that have got like a lot of noise coming from elevated railroads or from busy highways, kids can't focus as well. And, the, you know, their blood pressure is going up. They got more adrenaline in, in their blood. And that results into more challenges with, with learning. And so and for adults, the same thing, you know, Sound actually causes heart disease. For example, you know we tend to think of sound as just this annoyance, oh. but in fact, it's a lot more serious than that. It's noise is affecting kids and how they learn, and for everyone, it's actually creating physiological disease. In the U.S., we don't measure this so precisely. In Europe, in Western Europe, they've got precise estimates. I think the numbers they they're estimating that every year about 48,000 new cases of heart disease can be attributed to noise. And of course oh. they do that partly statistically by pulling out all the other factors that contribute to heart disease. But noise is, is and one in six people I think has, has chronically disrupted sleep and attention because of noise in, in, in Europe.
1: So it, it has. Re- it's not just an annoyance, it has real physiological effects?
2: Oh yeah, absolutely. And the the nature of those effects, it's even if you're accustomed to the noise, like let's say you've lived for 30 years pretty close to an airport and you're used to the sounds of airplanes coming over. But if if physiologists hook you up to some sensors overnight, even when you're asleep, and an airplane comes over, they, sh- they can show that your heart rate and your blood pressure is actually going to go up because you're getting stressed out just kind of subconsciously in your sleep, huh. even though you're used to to the noise. And of course, for people who aren't so used to it, the effect is is more severe. So yeah, noise is a, uh, is a challenge uh, for, for human physiology. The good thing about airports is that these days is that... Um, Airplanes are way less noisy than they used to be because the engines are way, way more efficient. Oh. Unfortunately, sort of counteracting that is there's a, a lot more air traffic than there used to be like back right. in the 1960s. Say. Yeah. So, you know, we, we, we improve on, on one side and then we get worse on the other, which is often the, the story with technological change, the, human um, the same is true of cars, right? So cars are quieter than they used to be, but there are a lot more of them.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So how did you come to this particular area of study, sound and how it affects human beings and the environment and so forth?
2: Well, through a couple of uh, several avenues, actually. One is my long-term fascination with evolution and with deep time. I studied that in grad school, even as an undergrad, I was always interested in kind of the backstory, like where did birds come from or what does this fossil tell us about the, the rocks in this area or how old is the land that I'm standing on, is it, is it just a city built on sand that was washed up here in the last ice age, or am I standing on rocks that are like 2 billion years old? Those kinds of things, to me, it's like getting to know the neighborhood, the family, you, you understand your, your place in the world a little. I, for a long time, have thought that a missing part of, of that evolutionary study is the story of the senses, like, and, and it's with sound in particular, when did communicative voices on this earth first start? And it turns out it was pretty late. I mean, creatures had sophisticated eyes and, and ears and claws and all sorts of other uh, body parts long before they started making any sounds, like mating calls or warning cries. And, and, and we know this from looking at the structure of the, their bodies in the fossil record, sound-making devices, like little ridges on the wings of insects. Or the syrinx, which is a structure in the chest of birds, all of these give us evidence about when birds, for example, first started to sing. So understanding the story of sound in deep time is, is particularly interesting. And then in the present moment, thinking about how, uh, in, in grad school, I studied the sounds of, of birds and how they'd evolved and adapted to place. And I've wondered for a long time, how, do, where do humans fit into all of this? So we got some, some great stories and theories about the evolution of sound in insects and birds and fish and whales. Human music is, and language is often thought of as kind of separate and really different. And, and of course, in, in a way it is. It's, it's unique and particularly instrumental music. There's no other species that uses tools to make sound-making devices the way we do. But in other ways, what we do as vocal and musical creatures fits into a larger story of, of the music of the world, if, if you like. And I think music is has a particular form within humans, but then also that particular form is rooted in means of vocal expression that are present in our primate cousins, that are present particularly in birds and insects and other vocal beings. So trying to figure out where do humans fit with the rest of, of life is something that I explore through sound in this book. My previous books, which are about forests and trees, that question also underlies those, is that how are we connected to the lives of trees, both in the city, but also way out in the forest, like in the Amazon rainforest. And and more and more, I I really believe that, you know, we we humans belong on this planet. We're not aliens dropped out of some other place. No, we belong here. We're we're literally blood kin to the rest of life in a Darwinian sense. I look at an oak tree or a bird, they're my cousins. Uh, Not as a metaphor, but actually, if you trace our family trees back, you'll get, you know, hundreds of millions of years ago, you will get to a species and maybe even an individual that is our great, 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 great grandparent. So in a way, this is asking, these are stories about the nature of our family.
1: That reminds me, I did... uh maybe a couple of years ago, a podcast with Amanda Yates Garcia. She's the Oracle of Los Angeles and she's a practicing witch. That's Mm -hmm. what she does. And her faith system is very much based in nature, which, you know, she explained all this to me. I didn't really know Mm -hmm. too much about it. And it was interesting when she, the way she put it, as opposed to like, you know, I was raised Catholic and um, that sort of, Faith system and she's mm-hmm. we, we were discussing it and she said you know a tree is right there I mean you can touch it you can feel it as opposed to a theory about a god an ephemeral god who you know whatever form you want to mm-hmm. yeah, envision that and I thought yeah that makes a lot of sense like people are kind of uh I don't want to say ridiculed I mean it's a lot different now but you'd be known as a tree hugger or something like that which strikes me as uh and and her as well illogical i mean there's the tree there it is it it gives life it gives oxygen it it sustains life and but some we cut it down and dismiss it and which is a peculiar and and not uh complimentary i guess take
2: on human nature
1: (laughs) that uh,
2: yeah we don't value it well, and it's not very adaptive either because, I mean, every time we eat any food, right, we're, we're dependent on other species and the soil mm. or, you know, breathe the air or use, use some water. We're, we're deeply interconnected with other beings. And, um, yeah, there's a, there's a great deal of meaning in that. And, you know, I think a lot of, of course, some forms of spirituality are very much about removal from this world. Yes. Um, but others, including in some of the, like, main, even, like, mainstream, Christianity, Judaism, uh, certainly Buddhism, there are strands of those traditions that are actually really deeply connected to the other creatures on this planet. Um, You know, Francis of Assisi, Sister Moon, Brother Wolf. And the the whole notion of like creation is that while humans are actually co-created with other beings on this planet, uh, in in a way that puts us in intimate relationship with, with with these others. Now, of course, there are other elements of those traditions that are very much all about domination and, and separation. Yeah. And but in our present moment, I mean, there's no question that we're in a, a time of extinction and a, and of crisis, climate crisis, of course, but also just the loss of sensory diversity in the world, which is. Uh, the, you know, one aspect of, of the crisis that, that I've written about in in this particular book. If we're not listening to the world, how can we hope to be good neighbors? How can we hope to be good kin? How can we f- hope to find good, both ethical, but also technological solutions to the problems that we're in? And, you know, I believe that hum- humans are really smart and we have the capacity for incredible empathy, also for unspeakable violence. And, and cruelty. So we have this, this dual nature, but we have the ability to solve a lot of these, these problems, but we can only do it if we're actually paying attention. And paying attention means a lot of things, but it, part of what that means is actually listening to the, to the world. And so it's disturbing to me to say, you can get a degree in biology still and not know how to identify a single sound of any of the birds in the neighborhood in which you live will not be able to identify a single tree or know some of its story and, and its character. And there's less of that now, but certainly when I was an undergrad, uh, you know, 30, 35 years ago, it was, like, it was all about just ideas and papers and textbooks and cutting stuff up in the lab and doing experiments indoors. No attention whatsoever to the particularities of the world around us. And I think these, it's, the world of ideas and of papers and of textbooks is not in conflict, with knowing something about the world of the senses of the everyday. These things should feed one another. And and certainly as a teacher, I use that opportunity all the time because honestly in the classroom, ideas only get you so far. Actually sticking your hand in the soil or listening to the sounds of trucks and learning something about the nature of the world. Through that, that, that connects to students in a way that just abstracted dry ideas often do not.
1: Yeah. I I mean, a lot of disciplines seem to, I mean, you, you can study, you know, urban blight and all of that and never actually go to the South Bronx or, you know, the inner city or whatever. And you, you may know, theory. like I remember going to grad school and getting my master's degree in education. Some of it was very theory driven and it's like, okay well, have you been in a classroom with a bunch of 11th graders who are not particularly interested in anything you're talking about? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Don't really like, now you got a different challenge on your hands. So this kind of, this got to uh, a question that I'd had. Um, One was, you know, why focus on sound? And, And you talked about it being generative and the interconnection between sound and creativity. And then my next question was the impact on people and you say like the drowning out of the sounds of the natural world make our world much more bland and we are increasingly disconnected from sensory storied relationship to life's community. So could you could you expand on that cuz it sounds like you were you were getting to that danger of that disconnection.
2: Yeah, I mean we, when we I mean there's two things that are happening there. One is as we turn our attention more and more inward towards only the voices of the human species, we uh, lose the source of information that we need in order to make good, good decisions. Uh, we also lose a source of wonder and, and of joy because tuning in say to the vibe of the seasons or when we travel, hearing, oh, wow, that you know, the birds in this area sound totally different than the ones back home. And that's part of the richness the variegated richness of the world and if we're not actually paying attention we're we're losing out on a huge amount of of, of wonder and of hope and of renewed energy i mean when i'm hearing that say this time of year it's uh, in the springtime and early summer hearing birds coming back from you know they've been in the amazon rainforest or down in the caribbean and for me to realize that they're there in the trees even in the middle of the city Moving on through on the way up to, to Canada just gives me this great jolt of energy. I feel connected into something much, much bigger than me. Uh, so by not paying attention, we lose out on all of that. And then the other part of the, the, what's happening is that as we convert habitats uh, and make them more homogeneous, as we remove natural habitat from, from some parts of the world, uh, the, the diversity of the world, not just of sound, but the visual diversity, genetic diversity, the aromatic chemical diversity of the world plummets. And so the world is indeed blander and flatter, which means that the world is is then less resilient and creative. It's also, I mean, some of these, these, say, with chemical diversity, we're losing potential new drugs and things that could directly benefit humans. So there's a human aspect to to this as well. But the, the larger issue is, Over the decades, say the decades that I've been alive, the the number of coral reefs that have disappeared, the clearing of of rainforests, the conversion of prairies into other habitats has just continued on and on. And so so it's like throwing out huge portions of of the inheritance that we've received from, from previous generations. Now, that's not happening uniformly over the world. There are places where restoration is happening where we're finding good ways to be in reciprocal relationship with the world, where humans get what we need from forests. It could be medicines, it could be timber products, and yet the forest is not destroyed through that process. And I think those are some of the hopeful signs in the world, is that there's an awakening to, you know, we need to mutual thriving is possible uh, if, if we pay attention.
1: Do you think there's a... In effect on like human beings' sense of creativity, of being creative, is as, as being diminished as we lose these sounds and this connectedness?
2: Well, we can look to the, to the past for an answer to that. If you, if you look at the, the great artists uh, and other forms of innovators, technological innovators, intellectual innovators, often their work emerges from those kinds of interconnections. Some of the most obvious ones you know being inspired by the sounds of nature or by the 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 view out into some uh, majestic vista or into some very some sort of marvel of the everyday, like looking at a, a little bit of pond scum under a microscope and seeing all those hundreds of beautiful little single celled creatures swimming around, so it doesn't need to be the you know the great view of the rocky mountains, it could be just some some grime scraped out of a a gutter, which I think is in a way even more marvelous that there's beauty and diversity in those places that we often think of as as degraded and lacking in beauty. Uh, So yes, those kind of connections do feed human creativity. Um, But that's not the only source of creativity. Humans need to connect with one another, of course. And, And I think we've got a better understanding of that within the human community of life. Like when you Say you learn a new language or you go visit a museum and, and see some, some artworks from a, from a different culture or you, you learn about a different way of thinking about something because you've, you've, you've listened to a news story or read a magazine story about someone outside or a culture outside of your everyday circle and frame of reference, that can lead to new ideas. Uh, And innovation is often not necessarily about a de novo, completely new idea. It's about putting two or three things together that nobody has put together before. So we understand that we can do that within the human community of life. We can do that uh, more broadly uh, by by paying attention to other creatures. Engineers are now doing this more and more. So if you wanna learn how to make uh, good paints or uh, an aerodynamic vehicle, or a drug that has a particular medicinal effect in the body, why not look to forests and the oceans for ideas, for molecules, for for anatomical designs that could work And this whole field is called biomimicry. And I think of it as using the, the, the kind of free market of ideas that's happened for the last 4 billion years on this planet, which is what evolution is, right? species and genes and individuals experimenting, finding new ways to do things, there's been a lot of innovation and a lot of discovery about how to make it work. Why not tap into some of that, some of that wisdom, some of those great ideas as we're trying to move our own, uh, our own thoughts and our own societies forward?
1: You know, it, it just occurred to me, you can go on YouTube, Spotify and find umpteen like eight hours of rainforest sounds, or mm-hmm. eight hours of the ocean, or, you know, to sleep and to meditate. So it seems like people are really craving these things. And, and maybe they're not making the connection that, or maybe they are, I don't know, they live in a city and it's very stressful mm-hmm. and they need they need that. And they, I don't know if they would term it like that. i oh, I just like to fall asleep to rainforest
2: sounds, but there's a real need for that. There is, we have yeah. a hunger for, for, soothing sensory connection, I mean, our, our senses evolved in basically in, in a savanna like environment, some trees, some grasses, maybe a little bit of, of water around, certainly not a lot of unpredictable and uncontrolled sound, uh, unless you know, lightning storm is passing over. And so we're tuned to, to those kinds of frequencies and those kinds of rhythms. And indeed, we find them helpful to us. And what's interesting, though, and I don't think there's enough known about this, is that different people have different proclivities. So for some people, it's the sound of, say, falling rain, which is kind of like a white noise sound. And part of the deal there is in listening to that, you're covering up some of the the, the uncontrolled, unpredictable sounds like cars honking on the street outside or car alarms going off, things like that. But there's also kind of a rhythmicity in there that's this and a, and a, a set of frequencies that are appealing others I mean I actually find that, you know the sounds of choruses of birds and of frogs are really relaxing to listen to, partly because of my own experience i've done a lot of listening in in the woods to those creatures, so it's it's carrying me back to a memory in my own life of being in the in those spaces but uh, I think for others, say if you don't have those experiences of like what bird sound needs for you. Some of these these other sounds like rainfall or the the gust of wind and pine trees, those kinds of sounds, whether they're the actual sound or some kind of digital analog of them, for example, like, like a synthetic white noise is essentially recreating that same experience, carrying us back to that, to what it means to be a human really, which is to be embedded into those kinds of sounds. Few people want to like chill out and relax to like the sounds of, I don't know like um uh you know an interstate highway or a busy right. intersection <laughs> right yeah I mean you know those sounds for musicians those can be a great source of cool ideas and energy but in general yeah. that's not what you want to sleep to right yeah but there's this
1: real craving for that well i it brings me to to films as well uh, Walter Merch is a he was a sound engineer on Apocalypse Now and he's done a lot of that work and he, t- he has a great book with Michael Odenjante about the English patient, the writing of it, and then making the film, and how sound, and, and a lot of people don't pay any attention to mm-hmm. it, sound has such an impact, more so than lighting or camera work or anything like that, and it's one of the most, I, I worked in the film industry for about five years, and it's one of those things where it's like, uh, waiting on sound, data. Sound, it, your lighting can be bad, your sound cannot, and mm-hmm. The, the sounds that the editor chooses to put in and where they're placed and certain cues that you're supposed to, emotional cues. Most people couldn't identify that, but if it doesn't work, they came out of a movie, they might say, like, eh, I just didn't really like it. And they couldn't really tell you why. Mm-hmm. A lot of times it's the sound.
2: Yeah, I mean, sound is, is sets the emotional texture for things. Uh, and also as part of the, the narrative, the narrative energy. And indeed, I mean, some some movies I find, I really like the ones that uh, use a lot of ambient sound mm-hmm. uh, rather than just, okay, we're going to pump music that's pretty obvious what's going on. Okay, here's the dramatic music, here's the right. suspenseful music, you know, and that has its place. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but the sounds of like a door creaking, or of somebody walking slowly on gravel, you know, so evocative. Phone ringing.
1: Whenever there's a phone ring, it's
2: jarring. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And particularly, you know, when it's recorded in very high quality and then played back in, in a movie theater, right. All the other sounds are dampened down. I mean, you know, all that carpet and velvet on the walls and stuff is there to damp down the sound (laughs) so that we're, the only thing arriving is what's on that soundtrack. So it's in a way, it's a very pure experience of sound, which is why it's so, you know, in a movie theater in particular, uh, it's so uh, drills down into us and really moves us and carries us along. Of course they crank up the volume, so it's it's hard to to miss, you know, there's no substitute for quantity as well as quality. Right, yeah. Uh, You know, and physiologically, we just found loud sounds up to a point, I mean, we find them a lot more stimulating. I mean, they get too loud. And of course, then we start to feel pain. But uh, up to that point, we actually get more and more activated the louder it is. Yeah, it's funny. Like throwing a song in there just kind of feels like a cheat.
1: Like it's a lot harder, but more worthwhile if you can do that with like, you know, the tapping of a spoon on a glass or, so you know, just something Mm -hmm. to ramp up the tension or bring it back down. Yeah, that's that's a real art form. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I was wondering, you, you'd mentioned in the beginning of the podcast about, and I think in the book as well, certain areas have certain, I don't know, if symphonic qualities or acoustic qualities. Uh, I did a podcast with this guy, Anton Newcomb, and he he's uh, has had a band for a long time, the Brian Jonestown Massacre. They've been around since the 90s. He's a real genius, plays like 80 instruments. And uh, he lives in Berlin now but he grew up in California and he said California is in like the key of a and mm-hmm. like ingrained in the soil and the further East it seemed, he was saying you get more into the sea Berlin and, and that area in Europe was more in maybe like D flat. And then mm-hmm. as you move to India, more in the E range, I, uh, that was his theory. I was, I was just wondering mm-hmm. if there was, uh, if you if you felt like any ease onto something there or
2: yeah, I mean I I don't experience it in that way, partly because you know I don't have um perfect pitch or that sort of understanding of uh uh the scale. I mean, I play a little bit of music, but um certainly it is true that different places have a really different feel. And for people who are really musically oriented, that would be expressed in in the form of of key signatures. Um and, of, and also just relationships within the, within the scale, like sort of minors or fifths and other, other kinds of chords. Uh, biologically, one of the things that really struck me, and, and this is over many decades, is how different continents, there are things on different continents that sound similar, like the crickets, for example, little field crickets sound very similar in Western Europe, North America, Australia. Whereas other things like the birds and the frogs are totally radically different. I mean, if you just listen like to five minutes of a, of, a, of a forest in North America compared to five minutes of a forest in Australia, you know, you're in totally different places. Why is that? Partly it's because the sounds are adapting to the, to the local conditions. Uh, so the vegetation is different in each place and sound transmits differently. Uh, so some frequencies are attenuated and some are not. And so the birds adapt to that through, through, um, through evolution, but also through their, through their behavior moment by moment. But the other thing is that we're hearing the legacy of deep time. Most of the songbirds in North America, for example, are descendants of two waves of immigration that came from Asia tens of millions of years ago. Before they were in Asia, they were in Australia. So we are essentially hearing a subset of Australian birds here in the Americas that have arrived here and then diversified in their own way. And they have their own kind of vibe, their own sound. You go to Australia, you hear much wider range of different species that have taken their own path. And so it's like you're hearing plate tectonics and the ancient legacies of set of groups of animals moving from one continent to another when you're listening to different places so yeah berlin and and and, um california and brisbane australia you know sound very different partly because of the the different cultural human things that are going on in each place but also because of these these stories that date back quite literally tens of millions of of years another example of that is a lot of the southern continent south america africa Australia, New Zealand, were all part of one big supercontinent, Gondwana land. And a lot of the animals are shared among those continents because the Gondwana land broke up into those southern continents. North America and Europe were part of Laurasia, which was a northern supercontinent. And so we share some similarities there. And so as the, the continents split up and drift from one another and, and join and clash, they carry with them animals. And those animals carry within their genes the instructions for making songs. So that's why the sounds of each continent sound so, so different. So there's a real history to the sound. Absolutely. And often that history is older than the rocks that you're standing on. So in Queensland, Australia, for example, a lot of the soil on the coast there is pretty young. It's only a few tens of thousands of years old. It came there through erosion and through some ice age action. And, and, and yet the birds there, they're like, their history goes back tens of millions of years.
1: Hmm. You know, I remember when I was in college, I did a semester in Australia and I'd, I'd never, I'd probably seen pictures of a cockatoo, but I'd never actually Mm -hmm. seen one. They're, you know, beautiful, all white and the yellow plumage and they are the loudest birds. At first I was fascinated because I was like, Oh my God. Well outside my bedroom window was a tree where they would congregate, and it was like an alarm clock. 5 Mm a.m., bang, there they go. And they were so louder than anything I'd ever heard. Kind of like a crow, but even... Oh, yeah. That was more... Yeah, I will never forget that. And I will never forget the birds. This wasn't a sound thing, but I would cut across this field to go to school. These little birds would dive bomb at me. Mm -hmm. They would keep doing it, and they would go a circle. And I would tell... I'd be like... Am I imagining this? Like, it was the strangest sensation. Never had anything like that happen in America. But mm-hmm.
2: yeah. Oh, yeah. No, Australian birds are, are uh, legendary for how loud they are. I mean, it's not just the cockatoos, minor birds, uh, lorikeets or others, partly because the, of the vegetation there. There's a lot of nectar producing, fruit producing trees in a way that's not true on other continents, which provokes a lot of kind of competition and sort of social angst. Uh, that really ramps up the level the volume level of the birds there, and tim lowe who 's a biologist in australia has has written extensively about this in um, in his books, understanding why Australia sounds so different from other places and and people from other continents i mean there are stories of people coming say from the u k and Western Europe who basically cannot stand the the sounds of the birds there and have to to leave because the soundscape is so different and alien for them. When I visited, I've taken just great delight in it because, wow, this is just, it's, it's so different from anywhere else. And it's such a marvelous expression of the energies of the world. And Australians then who go live, say, in Western Europe, sometimes will play CDs of Australian birds just to make themselves feel at home a little bit because the bird song in Western Europe is just, is not the same as in Australia. So again, we carry within us this internal acoustic compass that orients us back to home
1: do you feel um just kind of uh wrap us up do do you feel that is there any growing awareness and and anything to be done about it about this diminishing uh, sensory in general, but I, I sound in particular um, Uh, well I guess it's I I know you have a phrase for it um, that this is being taken away and and we are not benefiting from that and I mean is there any kind of awareness or or anything to
2: do about it yeah there is there is a lot more awareness I mean say with ocean noise which is one of the big crises we face there are a lot more people aware of that and you know ocean conservation groups and others are, are, are working with the shipping industry. There are technological solutions, different forms of ship paint and design of propellers that are moving us forward in that way. And in the terrestrial realm, yeah, people are, I mean, particularly with the new emphasis on attending to environmental injustice in cities, there's a, there's a lot more awareness of that now in city planning and noise pollution goes hand in hand with other forms of pollution, like, particulate air pollution so so in solving one problem you're actually solving multiple ones of course we got lots of challenges but yeah I mean I think there's there is a lot of awareness and a lot of the solution at, at the local level has to involve understanding the particular challenges and problems of each community you know the issue in New York City is different from what's happening in Miami or uh, in Johannesburg right and so that's another reason why we need to listen listen to one another in the human community but also beyond that so that we can develop solutions that are appropriate to place not just exported from one spot and it and imposed all, or, all around the world so I think that the practice of listening in every day can be really I mean it can be joyful can be fun but it can also serve as a source of of information and a kind of rooted wisdom about what are the best best paths forward.
1: Now, when you do your research, do you work with these different environmental groups and so forth, or do do you uh, give them information or how does that work?
2: Some, I mean, it it really depends where and what the context is. So uh, when I was uh, in the Amazon, this is before COVID, Met with a number of indigenous leaders there to understand their perspective on their relationship to the forest and what's happening with the um, with forest protections there. Um, and so, trying to you know, my role there is not so much to to provide information, is to listen. So that as I'm telling these stories as as a writer, I'm I'm actually to the best of my ability re- reflecting how people have. Uh, of relating to the environment, actually on the ground, uh, and my hope for the books is that they then catalyze ways of, of um, ways of thinking that are helpful to people as, as they move forward in their own in their own local environments. And yeah, I mean, I, I've worked with nonprofits, sort of an, an advisory role about land conservation, about other sorts of environmental uh, connections, and then. Um, I think for all of us, it's important actually to financially to be supporting these groups. Uh, you know, the, decades ago, there was this tradition where people would talk quite a bit about tithing, right? How much of my income should I give back to the community? And and I think that's an important part of, we. you know, we all have different means and some years are leaner than others. Uh, but of the income that's coming in, some of that has to flow back out. And that's why, for example, for my books, I always give a, a, uh, make a commitment to donate a portion of of any proceeds back out to, to groups that are working on the ground to deal with these issues. For example, in New York City, the organization We Act for Environmental Justice, which is based in West Harlem, but has a much wider scope and influence than just in West Harlem, is doing amazing work there. And I, you know, try and support them through, through contributions as well as mentioning their work very briefly is in, in, in this book that is about um, about noise in many different forms, not just in, in one part of New York. Okay.
1: Well, as my final, final wrap up, could you just, uh, and I'm, I know you've articulated this already, but what do you love most about your work?
2: Uh, The opportunity to first excavate really fascinating stories and try and put those strands together and then to share them with others, hopefully in ways that that are inspiring. And I do that. That's part of what I enjoy about being a teacher is to share those stories with students and then to see how they take those stories and do things that I could never, never dream of, you know, continually impressed by our creative my students are and then as a writer it's more indirect you, you know you write and you put the book out and you hope it reaches people but you don't have that immediate feedback of the classroom which in some ways is a good thing you don't get to see people snoozing off in the back row <laughs> but also you know
1: yes i've had that experience yeah oh yeah oh yeah well they need their sleep <laughs> yeah they do they do well professor haskell thank you so much this is really enlightening and entertaining and informative and uh I like the brass tax nature of it, that there's something that can be done about this.
2: Well, thank you so much, Matt. It's great to, to be in conversation in this sonic environment that we're in now. Yes, absolutely. All right, thanks a lot. Thank you.
0: Thank you everyone for listening to this episode of The Working Experience. We'd like to thank our sponsors, One Circle Media. If you work for a studio, network, startup, or corporation and are looking for a partner to create media that will build, engage, and entertain your audience, reach out to me at john at onecirclemedia.com. I would love to hear from you. And that's it. The end. The sweet end. Until our next audio encounter.